and this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. We're talking at a moment in history when certain long-held assertions about markets and government and even our relationship to nature seem to be loosening their grip. And the manufacturers of consent, as one of our guests today once dubbed them, no longer seem to have control over what everyday people think and do. Millions of workers are refusing to work or believe what authorities say. Others are rising up against the odds, against racist police, powerful sexist men, and even border guards on horseback with whips. All at once, all sorts of things that were once unthinkable are now being openly talked about. Our guests are lifelong dissenters who have always talked about such things. Coming from different backgrounds, contexts, and generations, they have this in common. They demand that we think differently about everything from our nation's history and its place in the world to who can run for office in America and win. Some of those unthinkables, like that one, are exciting. Some are terrifying, like the thought that the human race just may be on a terminal brink. To discuss this moment in all its frightening and exciting possibilities, two people who really do need no introduction, MIT professor emeritus, author and public intellectual Noam Chomsky, and the Democratic congresswoman from New York, Bronx native Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Welcome both. I am so glad to have you. And I'm going to come to Noam in a minute to talk about the new unthinkables at the level of political discourse and to you, AOC, to talk about the new unthinkable possibles in government. But first, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time you two have actually met. Sort of met. (laughs) Virtually met. That's a step forward. I hope there'll be an actual chance. I've been greatly admiring what you've been doing, following it closely. It's a real pleasure to be sort of with you. It's absolutely such an honor and a culminating moment to be able to engage with the one and only Professor Chomsky. And I greatly look forward to us being able to move as a society past this pandemic so that we can engage in person. I can't wait for that. I hope I'm there. So, no, I'm starting with you. You and I, for better or worse, have talked on and off for about 30 years. In that time, there's always been, as you put it, a kind of long list of unthinkable thoughts in America. And yet, just today, I read in one of our newspapers of record, the New York Times, that workers have real power, that the economy just might need some sort of planning, and that just possibly leaving so many things to markets isn't the best idea, especially when it comes to the environment, healthcare, you name it. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Is something shifting? And when you think of the unthinkables, what's changed and what hasn't in your view? We should first of all recognize that we've been living through about 45 years of a particular socioeconomic political system, what's called neoliberalism. Neoliberalism has a formal definition, pretty much what you said, reliance on markets and so on. That's almost total fraud. That's not neoliberalism. There was never reliance on markets. The so-called free trade agreements are radically protectionist. We're seeing that right now in front of our eyes with the 
virtual monopoly on drugs, uh, the, uh, what we've really had for the 45 years is what some economists have called a bailout economy. Ever since Reagan's deregulation, we have the obvious consequences, financial crisis after financial crisis, every time kindly taxpayer bails out the perpetrators. So it's one-sided class war, markets for the poor, protection for the rich. But now we talk about it. And it does seem to me there's been a shift. And I want to come to you on this, AOC. I have interviewed you before, and that was when you were just running for office for a panel about young people in politics. For an indication of how much has changed in terms of what's possible, I recall with my chagrin that even I, a confirmed optoholic, ended that interview saying, well, but if you don't win this time, will you run again? I, I thought it likely that you might not be victorious against powerful Joe Crowley that first time, but you were, and you're not alone. Has a, has a dam broken, do you think? I do think that there is a dam breaking both in electoral politics, but also in organizing beyond our electoral system, like what we're seeing with the precipitation of strikes on a scale that really has not been seen in many years. And I think it's a bit of an emperor with no clothes type of situation for our political establishment and our capitalist systems where people are beginning to realize that once we name these systems and describe them, that this water that they are, that people have been swimming in actually has a name and there is alternatives that people can come up for air uh, if we try to explore alternative ways of doing things. You know, after I won, there was such a large concerted attempt and continues to be a large concerted attempt by media to marginalize not just my victory, but what happened in our community. I mean, you have the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, within days saying this was a complete accident. You had every major elected official and Democratic Party uh, member trying to dismiss what happened. And the thing is, is that it didn't stop. There would be a case for that if I was the only victory uh, that occurred. But the fact of the matter is, is that, that that simply wasn't the case. We then had the election of people also naming systems and talking about what was previously extraordinarily politically taboo, the election of individuals like Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley. Then again, the next cycle with Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, Mondaire Jones. And it really seems as though there is a crack that is starting to metastasize. Again, this is not just applies electorally, but we're starting to see this with people recognizing the true power in techniques like withholding their labor or shutting down streets during the racial uprisings last year. No, what do you think? I mean, when you called AOC's election, when the congresswoman was elected, you call it spectacular and significant. Very much. It's a sign that the one-sided class war of the last 40 years is becoming two-sided. The population is actually beginning to participate instead of just accepting the hammer blows. We now are having a huge strike, one of the major strikes in American history, when workers are simply saying, we're not going to go back to the rotten, oppressive jobs, precarious, rotten circumstances, no health, 
We're just not going to accept it. Mm -hmm. And that's a major factor in the economy now. And yes, it's a strike. And it's showing up in other ways, too. For example, the last year, the teacher strikes were quite important. These are non-unionized red states. Tremendous popular support. And to live in Arizona, where one of them was, signs on every lawn supporting the teachers. Not a radical state by any means. They were not just calling for better wages, which they greatly deserve, but for saving the children, saving the public education, which has been under severe attack for 45 years. The same is happening in healthcare. In your constituency and across the country, Congresswoman, you have nurses who know about the critique that's going to come their way, but are nonetheless saying, actually, we can't operate with these kinds of nurse-patient ratios. We can't operate without the protective devices that we need. Um, we've seen that throughout the pandemic, both the courageous service and the courageous withholding of service at times. What are you seeing on that front? And what do you think is going to come of this? Because I have to say, you know, industrial unions came out of industrial economies. Today, mm -hmm. we have this kind of Bezos economy, Amazon economy, and service economies that aren't organized, most of them, in the same way. This is a, such an excellent question. And when we talk about systems that are being named, what is so intertwined in this discussion is that this is not just also about open critiques of capitalism, but also open critiques of white supremacy and its and greater understanding of white supremacy, not as just, you know, these racist social clubs of people donning hoods, but actually as a system and a system's understanding of how white supremacy has interacted with the development of the United States. And so the way that that, that that ties back in is that so many of these essential labor forces are dominated by women and women of color, whether it's fast food workers or whether it's nurses or whether it's uh, child care and, and teaching professions. The, I would say this capitalist class calls a labor shortage what, in what, what is actually a dignified work shortage is concentrated overwhelmingly in working class people, a multiracial working class, uh, but also in professions that are dominated by women and women of color. And, and so when we really intertwine our understanding of both of these systems, that presents to us and illuminates a lot of not just uh, the problems that are happening, but the solutions. Noam, I do want to underscore something that the Congresswoman just said. When you and I, when I came in to talking with you in the early 90s, there was a miserable and acrimonious backlash, even on the left, against what was then dismissed as annoying identity politics. What I'm hearing now in every corner is that people are getting it, as the congresswoman just said, unless we address the power of white male supremacy we're not going to get the changes that we need. Do you agree there's been a shift on that front? And are, things, are there things that you've learned in relation to that over your long career? There's a change. We should recognize that white male supremacy is a deep current in American history. It's not going to go away. 
immediately. Uh, it's, uh, but there have been dents, significant ones. So for example, uh, even in the mainstream, uh, when the New York Times ran the 1619 project, that couldn't have happened a couple of years earlier. And it's because of changes in general consciousness and awareness. Of course, there was an immediate backlash, strong backlash. And you're going to expect that white male supremacy is a deep part of American history and culture. To extirpate it is not going to be easy. And, uh, but there are, there's very significant progress. Uh, and plenty of conflict coming. It's not going to be an easy struggle. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. Together for the first time, my guests are Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a.k.a. AOC, representing New York's 14th, and Noam Chomsky, MIT professor emeritus, activist, and author. He's authored over 100 books. His latest is titled The Precipice, Neoliberalism, the Pandemic, and the Urgent Need for Radical Change published by Penguin Books. We'll be posting the entire one-hour conversation with AOC and Gnome at our website, lauraflanders.org. That's where you'll find even more of my interviews with Chomsky and the panel I moderated years ago with young voters and AOC in advance of the 2018 congressional primary. That's also where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter to receive information on all of our audio exclusives, streaming events, and my commentaries. The latest accompanies our special report, Community Safety in the Time of Insurrection. Next, the survival of the human race in the face of climate catastrophe. Where are we now on that doomsday clock? And that Green New Deal resolution AOC introduced roughly two years ago, where does that stand? But first, here's Come On, Come On by Scott Hardkiss, featuring Lisa Shaw from his album Technicolor Dreamer, released on God Within Records. Again, to celebrate bittersweet life So here's to our struggles and strife Let's make the most of these hours Till time defeats all with its powers And let's make the most till the dawn Keep on going Until we are gone Both of you are very focused on that other uneasy struggle, and that is the struggle for survival of the human race on the planet. And I don't think I'm putting it too um, grimly. AOC, your first piece of legislation was that Green New Deal resolution, which imagined a kind of 10-year national mobilization. We're a few years into that uh, 10 years. Are we still at a point where we can avoid going over that precipice, Noam? Is it too late? It's getting close. I should say that Congresswoman AOC's resolution recently reintroduced is uh, absolutely essential for survival. I'd actually like to know what you think the prospects are for moving it forward. Either something like that resolution will be implemented or we're doomed. It's that simple. Well, we still have time. Not a lot. The longer we delay, the harder it gets. 
to ask your question of AOC, what are the chances we can get real change? I want to say in our lifetime, but we actually need it much, much sooner than that. By making the decision to formally introduce this as a resolution instead of as a bill, uh, the intention of this was to release a blueprint uh, for mass consumption in order for people to understand the scale of action that is going to take just for the United States alone, let alone globally, in order for us to make the changes that need to be made in order to protect our society and our planet. And in that respect, I believe that it has been very successful. A resolution in and of itself is a statement of the sense of Congress. It does not formally bind us, uh, but what is incredibly encouraging is the mass adoption of this blueprint. And so once it was released and submitted to the House of Representatives um, and publicly available, we started to see movements across the United States that were not covered by media, but municipalities and states across the country started to adopt these targets on municipal levels. So you have the city of Los Angeles, you have Austin City Council introduced it, the state of Maine, New York City, and they, they weren't waiting for federal action or legislation. We can't underestimate what we are standing up against. There's a popular sense and understanding that so much of Congress is captured by big money, dark money, Wall Street, and special interests. But what I don't think is as quite understood is that this money is oil money that fuels Wall Street, uh, that captures Congress. But what is so important to recognize is that our systems and our avenues for action are not just limited to electoralism. Mm -hmm. And when we engage as far as we can to the limits of electoralism, then we also re-engage in our capacities outside of our electoral systems, whether it's the withholding of labor or other sorts of grassroots actions, because there is also a point of collective action that becomes too difficult for the ruling class to ignore, because it then starts to threaten their legitimacy. Let me ask you, Noam, to come in on this. I mean, your book title is The Precipice of Neo the Precipice Neoliberalism, the Pandemic and the Urgent Need for Radical Change. Where does that radical change come from, given the capture that the congressman's described so well, and as you have over the decades? Well, what AFC has brought up both in this comment and the preceding one is the interaction between mobilization and political action in Congress. And as she pointed out, the main part of politics is activism and mobilization. What happens in Congress is pale reflection, but it is a reflection. There's very dramatic examples of that, which she was too modest to mention, so I'll mention it. The Sunrise Movement at the forefront of activism on climate they got to the point of civil disobedience, occupying congressional offices, occupying Nancy Pelosi's office, demanding change. Ordinarily, they'd just be thrown out by the Capitol Police. They weren't this time, because one person from Congress came and joined the AOC. They weren't thrown out. That's what led to Biden's climate program. Not great, but 
better than anything before. Popular activism interacting with supportive people in Congress can lead to results. AOC, you did that action that Noam just described in the first moments after your election victory. And you've sometimes said that part of your job is to retain that sense of outsiderism and freshness. How would you say you're doing on that front? And what is your vision at this point of the progressive agenda on the Mm -hmm. domestic side and also the, the foreign policy side? Well, I think one of the things that we've been figuring out how to navigate is How do you go from pushing an opposition party under a neo-fascist administration to then essentially acting as a minority party within a governing party and how you manage the tensions between activism um, and how we, we really expand the power and the potential of mobilization under those two different kinds of regimes. And I think one of the things that we've been successful at, and I think something that is very much a major victory that I'm looking forward to seeing how it evolves, was this most recent showdown in Congress around the reconciliation and infrastructure fight. Because historically, the Progressive Caucus in Congress has been largely toothless, and it has essentially been more of a social club than a political caucus that can wield power. And because of that dynamic, this neoliberal and conservative corporate wing of the party has dictated the Democratic Party's agenda, essentially without any sort of internal resistance for a very long period of time, save for you know, a handful of people that didn't quite have the numbers. But what we experienced at the beginning of this month was a real transformative event in the history of the Progressive Caucus within Congress, uh, where for the first two years that I was in office, it was essentially myself and three other Congresswomen. Maybe, maybe we could get five others, and we have a numbers of maybe 10 people in the last Congress, to be able to break with the party. And this most recent fight, the Progressive Caucus, which is 95 members, out of the 218 needed to pass any legislation, galvanized. And they were willing to withhold their vote in order to ensure that the package with the the greatest amount of benefits for most people, uh, from labor, healthcare, childcare, educational protections to climate, was prioritized. And Democratic Party leadership attempted to slip in this additional one to two billion dollars for Israel's Iron Dome missile system in routine legislation, a continuing resolution legislation, whose intent is to just continue uh, funding of our current operations the way that they have been funded as we negotiate the budget. So instead of doing that, they attempted to slip in additional funding into a continuing uh, fund resolution. So I worked along with several others uh, to strip and remove that funding. I think that came as a shock to the party. It came as a shock to mass media. They didn't know how to cover it. Many of them continue to try to adopt this tired narrative of a handful of progressive stragglers are troublemakers in the party. But uh, the fact is, is that this very pro-corporate wing is a handful of people that are pursuing a path of obstruction. I want to just 
end by asking you to talk about your vision for the future, Gnome, and how you th what leads you to think we can get there? started in the 1930s. I'm old enough to remember it. Uh, my family was first-generation immigrants, working class, mostly unemployed, very hopeful. It's not like now. Much, in absolute terms, much worse than now. But in psychological terms, very different. There was a sense that we're working together, we can get out of this rotten conditions, but we're together. We have the militant labor action, we have political organizations, uh, we have our groups, associations, working together with a somewhat sympathetic administration. We can get together and fight our way out of this. And they were right, they could. Not everything, but a lot of progress. That happens right throughout history. It'll take around 1960, a couple of black kids sat in on a lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, segregated lunch counter. Of course, immediately arrested and thrown out. Could have been the end. Except the next day, a couple more came back. Pretty soon you had few people coming from the north to join them. Pretty soon you had snake workers driving freedom buses through the south trying to encourage a black farmer to take his life in his hands and go to register to vote. Pretty soon you had a huge movement, always like that. It's the people, you don't even know their names. Who knows their names? Nobody. Uh, but they're the people who make things happen and are the inspiration. Actually, my old friend Howard Zinn formulated this nicely. He said, uh, he said we should really honor the uh, unknown, the countless unknown people whose work lays the basis that ultimately enter history. They're the ones who are inspiring, and uh, they're the ones we should honor, respect. AOC. Your vision, your sense that it's possible? You know, there's this, uh, there's a, the writing by Arundhati Roy, which is that another world is not only possible, but it is already here. And finding the pockets where this world has arrived uh, is what gives me hope. The Bronx is has one of the highest per capita rates of worker cooperatives in the world. That is a new economy in our borough of millions of people. And so whether it's that, whether it is discussions around mass incarceration, abolitionist organizing, not just, you know, what does it mean to dismantle a jail, but what does it mean to reorganize a society so that we do not have people engaged in antisocial behavior on such a scale that we have today, um, or that we don't have antisocial systems, um, you know, that we that these these are not just theoretical conversations that people are have are having, but there are communities that are actively experimenting and developing um, solutions. And so, 
to me, I think what I work on is, is not how do we find solutions, but how do we scale the solutions that we've already developed to transform our society? And that is, uh, that is work that breaks our cycles of cynicism. Uh, cynicism, I think, is a far greater enemy to the left uh, than, um, than many others, uh, because it, it is the tool that is given to us to hurt ourselves. And hope creates action, and action creates hope, and that's how we scale forward. Well, I think it was Aaron Dati that said, as you say, the another world is not only possible on a it's, it's happening on a quiet day. I think she said you can hear mm -hmm. her breathing, and, yes. and in this conversation, I've definitely heard her breathing. Um, we will continue to report those stories that fly in the face of cynicism. I thank you both for your lifelong commitment to acting in ways that defy that cynicism, and appreciate that you chose to spend the hour with each other and with us at The Laura Flanders Show. Huge appreciation to you. Um, unless you have any closing comment or thing you want to say to each other, I know that we're at the end of our time that we had you commit to. I'm just eternally grateful to both of you for taking the time. And I so sincerely appreciate it, Professor Chomsky, of course. And uh, Laura, thank you so very, very much. Unthinkable thoughts. It's like water to a fish. The status quo is just the way things are until someone says there are other options. AOC and Noam Chomsky have been talking about our options as a human race for years. Good or bad, they think what have been unthinkable thoughts and say them out loud. What was almost unthinkable for us was to bring them together in a single conversation, but we did. So a big bravo to those on my team who made that unthinkable thought thinkable and possible to boot. Thanks to you for your interest. For more information on this week's guests, along with a suggested reading list and links to related episodes in our archives, go to patreon.com forward slash The LF Show. That's also where you'll find an invitation to join us as a subscribing partner. Patreon partners commit five, ten, or twenty dollars a month to keep us free and non-commercial. In return, they get the word first about our post-premiere talkbacks each Sunday on YouTube, and first access to uncuts and specials like the full uncut version of this historic conversation between Noam and AOC. In it, AOC talks about a vote on Israel-Palestine that caused her to cry as she cast it, and Noam weighs in on what's changed and what hasn't in the Democratic Party. Go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show to become one of our precious Patreon partners. To quote AOC, there are already communities experimenting and developing solutions. What we need to work on is how we scale them to transform our society. That's where the Laura Flanders Show and media and education that covers alternatives comes in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. And a special thanks to our Patreon partners for making this show possible. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Matt Colicello, Jeremiah Cothran, Mercedes Grostiaga, Jeannie Hopper, Nat Needham, Charlotte Carpenter, David Newman, Rory O'Connor, Ryan Hote, Sabrina Artel, and Jeanette Hernandez. 
Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. <laughs>